So for those that don't know, who are you and what do you do? So I am Hikal. I am an independent security researcher and I am also a lead researcher at Spearbit. I start off as a warden in Code Arena and then, you know, subsequently Spearbit and a little bit of Sherlock as well. Mostly performing security reviews. I have done a few solo audits as well, but I prefer working as a team and therefore if my main priority will go to Spearbit whenever they have something available for me. And how did you get into crypto in the first place? Interesting. Okay, so how I got into crypto was back in 2017, where I was doing my first internship. So during my summer break in NUS, in my, see, I think it was my second or third year, no, third year, correct. My third year of studies, I pursued an internship with a company that it was a startup that was doing research into how startups obtain funding, right? So there are a few channels, like it's through VCs, through equity, or it's through crowdfunding. And I was helping them do a research into these avenues. And I stumbled upon a crowdfunding platform that was good on top of Ethereum. So it's like, oh, Ethereum sounds catchy, right? What's, what's that? What kind of sneaky technology is that, right? So... I mean, it, it all starts off with curiosity and then it's like, oh, this looks, this tech seems revolutionary. And then you start reading more about it and you realize as a tech person, you, if I think it's very eye-opening and I, I think that kind of like ignited a spark in me that I knew I wanted to work full-time in the crypto industry. So of course then very soon after I bought my first ETH on Coinbase and then I was charged, I think like 20, $30 in fees for just like, I think a couple of hundred uh, dollars worth of ETH. So, you know, in, in, in a way, looking back, I got ripped off, <laughs> but you know, you got to start off somewhere. And then of course, I think it was ICO season. And then you start reading a little bit more and it's like, oh, I'm going to try participating in this ICOs because people are making 6X, 8X, right? Immediately, it's just like, just putting your money, you know, once it, it gets listed, you know, you can just like sell it off for quick, quick buck, right? So... Then after that, I got into, from after my internship, I was attending like networking events in, that were organized by Ethereum Singapore. And it was at one of those events where I met Loy and PN, who were the, uh, well, they, they were, Loy's the CEO of Kyber back then, and PN was the dev head. So when I, when I, I met them in an elevator and, you know, long story, Long story short, I it was like an elevator pitch to the moment the elevator hit like the first floor, they offered me an internship. So then I managed to secure my internship at Kyber and then that was for six months and subsequently I converted full-time with Kyber for about, and I stayed with them for about four years until February of last year. And while you were doing those internships, were you also studying or were you full-time and intern? I was a part. The first company that I interned with, it was full-time because it was a summer break. But the moment I had my studies, then it became, it was more of a part-time thing. Because I, but thankfully, it was like my last semester. So I only had like, I think one module to take. So I only had to go to the university for like one to two days a week. And then the rest of the days, I was free. Yeah, that's cool. And what were you studying? Oh, I studied applied mathematics and... Well, I, I had a choice back then. I was offered a computer science major and then there was also applied mathematics. So it was toss up between the two. And my father advised me to do applied math because I mean, CS back then wasn't as popular, but it was like one year later and the cutoff to enter the CS course was like, I think straight A's. So it, it went from like having B's and like the cutoff was like B's and C's. The following year, it just jumped straight to, it became like straight A's because for some reason, computing became a very popular course to take. Yeah. Yeah. I personally think your father's suggestion is really good because anyone that goes into applied mathematics is not going to get any issue learning how to program and how computers work. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I think it also came the benefit that I could take on a few computing modules because it's part of our course as well take on like some basic programming modules 
And of course, then I was able to pursue a computing minor. So being exposed to a few more computing oh. concepts uh, helped along the way. So you got an internship at Kyber. And how was the transition from just working at Kyber to actually getting to more security side of things? I was, I was doing like documentation initially when I converted full-time. Then I became a smart contract developer, I think mid to late 2019. But I already had prior smart contract experience because I was like tinkering around with Solidity and learning how smart contracts work. Diving into codes that smart contracts that other con other people have wrote, so I'm just playing around a little bit. So when I became a full time smart contract developer, then it gave me an experience from I mean from the developer's point of view, right? Having to write tests, having to deploy stuff, so that was definitely essential from the developer side of things to have a good overview of okay what's needed from integration with the front end, for instance, like what events they need what kind of information needs to be emitted in these events, right? And that was slowly I then made the transition to security in the sense that I was like Kyber has worked with, has engaged chain security as their, as their auditors, right? So I worked with chain security and they are really like excellent in their security reviews, right? So it gave me a glimpse of how the approach security from the point of then of course I was introduced to Code Arena by my my colleague who then shortly left the company, and he he showed me this like cool website like yeah he sent me this link on Code Arena and I was like okay what what is Code Arena all about so you know again once you once you start you start off with being curious about something, and then you dive into it and it's like, hey, this is actually pretty cool and it's quite fun to look at code bases and point out like what the vulnerabilities are in uh, these uh, code bases. So of course, I, I did that part-time uh, during my free time. Then, of course, I realized that it was quite lucrative and uh, I decided to make the switch full-time last year. I Roughly, I think the first contest I took part was in July of, of 2021. Okay, so that's yeah. quite a, quite a while ago. I think it's yeah. it's been about one and a barely half. started. It's coming to two years already. Sorry, I keep saying it's one and a half because, but then I realized you know time time passes. Yeah, it's so more it's than like, two years now. It's two years now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, time flies. Time time really flies. I think if you were to look at the security landscape back then, as opposed to what you have now, it's like grown. It's been massive. There's a massive explosion and the number of web piece security researchers you have as opposed to two years ago. So how was doing C4 then versus now? What what changed in those two so, years? <laughs> so much change, right? First of all, the number of wardens you have. <laughs> Back then it was like, I would say maybe 30 to 50 people. Each contest would only have maybe at most, at most, I think 20 wardens that participated. So because of that, in terms of reward dilution, it wasn't a lot, right? Like you, you, the issues that you submit back then, I think you could submit like a fee on transfer and still get like a couple of hundred dollars. Nowadays, if you submit that issue, you, it's, it's actually, you're probably spending a lot more effort submitting that issue as opposed to the reward that you're getting from it. So in terms of the evolution of issues, right now you have like bot racers, right? That automate these findings and try to like steer wardens towards more unique and medium and high severity findings. So yeah, back then like you could you were to sub you submitted individual low issues and like even informational issues, right? So it was very mm -hmm. tedious in terms of the judging process. Not that I was involved in it. I joined when they introduced QA reports already as a judge. So I I think the process has definitely changed a lot since Two years ago like it's a moving engine and there were a lot of modifications made along the way apart from the number of wardens yeah i talked about the evolution of the issues so back then i think like issues that were that were commonly found across different code bases you could still get a good chunk of money from those but if you were to submit them nowadays yeah again it's, it's not it's not worth the effort anymore and they've probably been automated away by these support races yeah, it definitely got very diluted from 
where it was, if you go past the older contest, you see 10 to 20 people submitting issues. Yeah. And when you started, you were mostly doing solo work and you said you enjoy group work more. So yeah. how, how did you start doing audit with, with a team? So I was doing mostly, I was mostly participating in audit contests until I think middle of last year when I, okay, so I was introduced to Spearbit when I was at Amsterdam for Death Connect and TrustX, right? So it was at the Solidity Summit that uh, I met uh, the Spearbit guys, right? And I, I bumped into like Gerard and uh, Christoph and, you know, they, they kind of like introduced me to Spearbit. And so they, they offered me a position shortly after and that's how I got my first mm -hmm audit with them and so and, and it was also my my first opportunity to work as a team right with different uh, people right and I would I think the first audit I did was with Christoph C. Michel and uh, a few other one senior uh, one mid-level and two juniors right so being able to bounce I realized that we were able to like bounce off ideas we were able to have good discussions in uh, a private discord channel and from there then you know you from these discussions, typically you would have bugs that probably you would be discussing stuff and along the way you would discover vulnerabilities that you probably wouldn't have discovered otherwise alone. So I think being having that group dynamics definitely helps. And I was actually talking to Pablo a little bit in a couple of weeks ago at the DeFi Security Summit. Like how, how exactly they, they do the team selection. So it isn't ex exactly random. They try to they, they do their best to match both the skills and they look at the, in, in a sense, like the team dynamics a little bit. Like he, he's a very, what was the term? He, he has some kind of like psychology background that kind of like, that he tries to use, that applies to like security researchers and see, okay, where exactly their, their background is, what do they specialize in, how, how they think about issues. And then they, that's how they kind of like, group people together. So, so it was quite interesting and enlightening to hear from him on how they do the selection of security researchers for an audit. And I, I think it's some, I don't know how other traditional audit firms do it, but to hear that from me was like, oh, wow. And I, I so, okay, funny, <laughs> I have to sidetrack a little bit. I was about to leave um, the SS. I was like pretty tired already, right? I was like, oh, hey, Pablo, I'm, I'm going to go because he's, he's manning the uh, the entrance, right? I was like, oh, yeah, hey, I'm going to go. So I woke up with him and then, you know, we just ended up talking and talking. So then it, I, I forgot. I think I was talking. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll see you in Japan, right? Because we were, uh, we were, we had this like neutral interest in visiting Japan. So I was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll see you in Japan someday. And then after that, it somehow evolved into talking about these like processes on how Spearbit works and security issues and I don't know we just like digress so much and I ended up spending one and a half hours chatting with him <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was fun and then he was telling me this like crazy wild story where he had to he, he posted a thread about it on Twitter where he had to run out and like help park the scooter correctly and then run back and it, it was all, all sorts of crazy stories that he shared as well so anyway I, I think it's it's always nice to meet people in person and yeah, it's just interesting to hear how involved he is in helping Spearbit to like select the people for an audit. Usually, you know, your your auditing process changes over time as you get more experience. Yeah. So if you can touch upon these subjects, it'll be pretty cool. Okay. Yeah, sure. So when I was doing a when I started off, I think I was just solely looking at the code base and as a beginner, typically reading previous audit reports helps, right? So it also there are, there are a few factors here at play, right? The first is whether or not the project is a fork of an existing project. If it is, then it would be very helpful to take a look at the audit reports that were based on the existing project and to see what vulnerabilities were discovered and whether or not they are fixed, right? So for instance, a very popular protocol that is forked is Compound, right? And so you could start by reading the reports of Compound. You could also start to look at 
vulnerabilities that were discovered along the way on Cobalt, like hacks, for instance, right? And and hacks that happen to forks or Cobalt. So an issue typically is re-entrancy that, that happens because of how, how they handle token transfers, right? So if you use an ERC-777 as collateral on Cobalt, it's not going to, you're, you're going to get rubbed. You're, you're going to hack that hack. Right. And another issue is with what's the other vulnerability with Compound? Um, now there, there's like one or two other nuances with Compound. Oh, like the X Hushi one, I think it affected Compound as well. Or was it Aave? Yeah, one or the other where, you know, you could like, because of how these value accruing token mechanisms work, you could kind of like exploit it. And then it, it could leave bad debt for the protocol itself. So having, looking, understanding past hacks that happen and seeing or not whether it's applicable to the current project, you know, I think it's quite essential, right? So it's a good base to start off with. I didn't do that initially, right? But I think that has helped me along the way whenever I take a look at the project. So that's one part of it. The other is... I think understanding the expectation, the expected behavior of the protocol, right? So one part that I slowly realized along the way was to be a little bit more involved in discussions with the protocol. So paying the team about certain behaviors that they expect, right? So whether or not they expect a certain parameter to be zero, whether it's, whether it's reasonable to have this expected behavior or at least like at least asking them exactly what how they expect this function to behave and then from there then you can figure out not whether it the actual behavior the, the implementation is in line with what they expect and sometimes it's certain nuances that the these certain edge cases that they didn't think of right and that's where certain vulnerabilities lie and that's, that's how you point it out to them. It's like, oh yeah, actually it's, it's not supposed to be this way, right? And then, then th that's when they start fixing things. Um, the other part is also integrations. So a big portion of contracts tend to integrate with others. So it's, it's all about composability, right? You're integrating some external protocol. And I realized that more often than not, the dependencies tend to have issues in, in terms of integrations. There are uh, a few, couple of like integration issues that I've spotted along the way. And so I think it's important to take a look at not just the current, the, the current code base, but also to have a good understanding of uh, DeFi Legos, right? So in Compound, Aave, UniV2, V3, these are important integrate that these are common projects that are integrated or built on top of, of GMX is another one, right? So having a, a good understanding of how these protocols work at a very technical level, I think that knowledge, building up that knowledge will go a long way when auditing uh, projects. You never know when this knowledge comes in, into play. Yeah, so that's another part. The last one I will talk about is probably documentation. So it's a little bit in line with the first point I had about expected behavior. I think... So, okay, it's both documentation and test. So taking a look at the test helps you to ascertain whether or not the behavior is expected. Sometimes you think it's a vulnerability, but you take a look at the test, then it's actually covered there. But then again, it's still good to clarify with uh, developers whether or not they really expect it to be this way. The other point about documentation is inline comments. So through the life cycle of the development of a product, function implementations tend to change, but inline comments don't. They, they feel they forget to update it or they push it to until they are almost ready for audit. It's like, okay, I'm going to do it when I'm close to audits, right? Typically, you they tend to leave out or it, because you have like so many things to change along the way, you realize that you, you there's usually one, one or two things that they, they missed out on or sometimes it's just a wrong comment or, or it, the comment could be clarified better, it could be simplified. So although... They are typically informational or low issues, but I think it helps to having help the teams polish these things up. I, I, I think it, it, it's in a way, it's a value added service that I think 
developers appreciate. So. Yeah, I agree that once if the code is clean, it's a lot easier to find proper vulnerabilities because you don't have to spend time on the low stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, how does absolutely. your process? How does your process currently look like? Do you go first line by line? Do you first read the documentation? Do you just dive straight into the code? How how do you approach the audit from the start? Right. So how I think one thing that changed quite a bit was I initially started off just straight diving into the code base. But I think the goal that I had back like when I first started off and the goal that I have now is different. So back then it was just like diving straight into code base and not really like getting a good full picture. Like it's maybe like having reading these function in, functions in isolation. But now I think the goal is really to have a good mental model of how the protocol works, right? And how you go about achieving it can be different. For me, I think what works is to have a brief if they have documentation, I'll read it. So to have a good like brief overview of the major moving parts. Then after that, it's diving straight into the code base. It doesn't really, for me, it's not really like line by line, but I think it's starting off with the basic user actions. So it, maybe it's like depositing your funds, right? And then after that, what do you do with the deposits? It's how, how are the funds being used, right? And then what, what happens along the way? And then after that is the withdrawal. So there's usually like an entrance point where the user does something to start kickstart something. Something happens, uh, there's an intermediate step that happens along the way. Maybe it's either to say rebalance, right? Or you're going to add liquidity, you're going to remove partially uh, the liquidity that you've added. And finally, it's the exit. So it's either fully closing your positions or it's uh, doing a full removal of the assets you've provided. And Starting from there, then after that, you have a, I would say like a good understanding, a better, you have more context to the functions that you're reading into. So it's usually not just a one-time read, you have to do it a number of times. But each time you do it, you have better context. So I I, I, I think a good analogy is like video games, so you're playing like, let's say Mario, or okay, I was playing like Ghost of Tsushima, right? So. Maybe that's not a great example or anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll stick to the Mario, the Mario instance, right? So of course you could like you're playing like say the first stage, right? And you, you pass it the first time. And of course you maybe you reach the end goal, right? But then there are like you don't get a hundred percent, right? You there are like certain jumps where you, you're supposed to get like the golden star, for instance, right? but you, you don't get it the first time around, right? So you replay it again, or maybe you feel at this like stage, you you feel at like 75%, right? So you go back and try again, and then you realize, okay, I'm supposed to jump here. I'm supposed to avoid this shell, you know? So that's when you have additional context when you're playing the game, because you realize, okay, you're not supposed to do this. You're, I'm going to step right here. I'm going to step left here. So that same like concept of redoing things applies to the code base because you have better understanding. It's like, okay, I know why this certain, why he chose, why the developers chose not to do this or why they chose to do this this way, right? So of course, sometimes they have the inline comments for it, but sometimes they don't. So then that provides that additional context gives perspective of why they chose the design choices that they've made. And sometimes it's, yeah, it's, it's not articulated in the documentation, but it's only from reading it multiple times. And with better context, I think that helps to understand the business logic better and therefore point out vulnerabilities on where the deviations are. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, actually. I always look into what are the actors and what they can do and like I yeah. list them out and Exactly like you said, if you do that a few times, you start building that mental model that is a, every time is a little more robust and yes, it makes it easier for you to just think of things in your head without having to surf through any code. You, you just kind of understand it. Yeah. The other thing that I realized was not to stare at the computer screen like eight hours a day. I think it's important to do passive thinking. So meaning like go to the gym, right? Like do something that takes on, let your mind like think of what ifs, right? And maybe it could be like doing household chores when you're doing the laundry, when you're ironing clothes, right? And then you just think along the way when when you're doing that action, you know, you let your mind think of like possible scenarios and you think of like, okay, what if this guy does this thing? It's like, oh, did I I consider the case where uh, the 
the amount is zero. Yeah, I consider this, can I consider that? And I've realized quite a number of times that when I'm when uh when I'm doing that, that this like passive thinking it has enabled me to find vulnerabilities that I probably wouldn't have found. Yeah. So the idea of not looking at the screen, not not like actively not doing actively not actively looking at the code base, I think is also another key aspect to my auditing process. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think having that off time, it's yeah. crucial to let your mind wander. And yeah. and sometimes unexpectedly you're like, whoa, I just figured mm. something out. Yeah. And then you run to the computer and you check it and it's and it's true and you're like, yes, I got it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So so when when there's that rush of adrenaline that you get when when you find a vulnerability that you could validate. So it's like, yes, I found a crit. Yeah, I think the sweetest kind of vulnerability is the ones that you find when you're away from the computer that you have to run and check before yeah, yeah, you forget. Like running, you that's, like... that's my favorite type. And yeah. I know you specialize in DEXs and more in DeFi in general. Why did you end up specializing in that aspect of auditing? And how, um, how did that happen? So I think this applies to my applied mathematics background. Right. So if you look at DeFi, um, finance has math into it, right? And I think it's something that a number of, I would say, I wouldn't say like may, many, but probably a few security researchers try to avoid, like they try to avoid like looking at the complex math because it's complex, right? But you having that advantage in having my back from where I come from, my background, right? I, I think that gives me advantage, an advantage. So therefore, I think DeFi was a very, uh, it was a very nice fit in, into how I could apply, apply my knowledge. But then again, I mean, it's probably only like maybe like 5% of what I've learned, right? I think you can get away with understanding calculus. And then, you know, you look at the exchange rate, and it, like Uniswap, for instance, like X times Y equal K, right? Like it, it's, it's not difficult, but then having understanding computational math on or having taken a course in numerical analysis on approximations, right? So how do you approximate formulas and where the errors can be, right? So when you're doing like logarithmic math in solidity, right? Then what are the, is the approximations correct, right? Uniswap V3, for instance, I think they did, they, they do, I think square root, right, right? Square root price math. They have a square root price math library. So it was quite fun to dive into that library and to understand the the tricks that they use, like hard coding certain, uh, like instead of like doing the computational, the computations on chain, you know, you calculate certain constants off, like off chain. And then, you know, you just hard code that, those uh, numbers in. So I, I think that that's quite nice. Um, and it's uh, probably a trick that can be applied into if you're doing like some like complex calculations. Um, so that, that's like one instance <clears throat> again, let's, I think nowadays you have a growing DeFi derivative, like derivatives, I think it's a growing aspect and an area where you start to see more projects diving into. So like perpetuals, um, popularity of GMX, for instance, I think being, having a good understanding of financial instruments, I think that will give an advantage as well. And of course, these are also quite a, a little heavier on math, right? So again, it's applicable to uh, my background. And therefore, I think with that, with that advantage and it gives, that it gives me, I think it only makes sense to specialize in it. So what kind of math would you recommend for auditors to become proficient at? One area I talked about was numerical analysis understanding approximations, um, how you approximate, say, the, how is it, Taylor's formula, for, for instance, right? It's not just one one, it's just an example, but understanding how approximations work, because you have the very nice theoretical formula, right? E, I think it's E minus, E to the power of minus X equals to, then you have this, like, nice formula. That's one thing. The other part is having a good understanding of calculus. I think with curves, right? Like if you see like pricing curves, right? They tend to be a little bit more advanced, right? So understanding the river, like the, 
how is it derivations right and in the, i would a le- lesser portion use in, in the integrations but the derivations having a good uh, a fundamental understanding of that helps and nowadays you also have zk coming up so having uh, and it deals quite heavily with elliptic curves right so understanding elliptic curves a little bit understanding linear algebra i think those are very key aspects into uh, they are important prerequisites before you look into zero knowledge do you have any resources that you could share where people can learn a bit of numerical methods uh, a bit of uh, calculus mostly derivatives and also the ones related to zk well, okay, so I dive a little bit into ZK, and if you see my pinned tweet on my Twitter account, uh, you can look at uh, the journey that I took. Uh, I think it could be interesting because the quality of the resource you learn from can significantly increase the speed that you can take that content on. Yep. So I think having good resources, it's such a cheat code. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, having like a good a resource that helps simplify the concepts, making it simple to understand for the layman. I think that is really vastly underappreciated. Yeah. And why did you get into ZK in the first place? I think it was a goal for me at the start of this year. I saw that a number like ZK was becoming popular. So as a security researcher, I think it's important to continue to be relevant. And, and also, it's also curiosity, right? As you can see, like, as I explained my journey, it, like, I think a key part throughout these years has always been, you have to start off being curious, trying to understand why things work a certain way, right? Why, and like playing around with stuff, right? I think it all boils, it all stems from the desire to understand why things work and just be curious, right? So again, why I started off with ZK was because number one, I was curious about it. Like I wanted to understand the technology, the inner workings of it, and also to keep myself relevant as a security researcher, because you never know when, if you start to see more and more zero knowledge applications being built, then they would need to be audited. So then the question is, okay, what is the prerequisite knowledge that I need to audit these uh, applications? So that's why I, I started learning ZK. And how was that learning curve like? I felt it was a little challenging. It was quite abstract. Like I would say maybe 70 to 80% of what I learned on ZK is probably not very, it probably won't be used in the development of a ZK application. So I think what would have helped my journey and what would probably help a lot of people is to develop a ZK application. So then you only learn, essentially it's on the job training. You learn the parts that you need to know, right? And of course, then in your free time, when you want to explore other areas of, of like, it's, it's like a black boxing, right? So maybe you understand, okay, I, I need this portion. So you learn the knowledge about it, but you don't understand the black box itself. So when in your free time, then you explore what the black box actually does. And I think that, uh, unlock certain it unlocks a better it unlocks knowledge and helps you better understand the system as a whole. And do you think the black box knowledge is crucial to doing the audits, or something that you can get away with not having? I've not done a zero knowledge audit, so I cannot say for certain whether or not you can get away with it. Probably good to work with people who are experienced already, either developing ZK applications or they have audited ZK applications to share more insight on it. But of course, just being able to work with them, I think that will go a long way into telling, into pointing, into them pointing you in the right directions on what you yeah. can learn. For sure. And how long for someone that is not a graduate in applied mathematics? for a regular human being, or at least mm-hmm. a regular smart contract auditor, how mm-hmm. long do you think it would take for them to get up to speed to be able to get into ZK in math-wise? Let's say they, they go full-time and they dedicate all their time to learning ZK. I would say probably a few months, but it depends on how, how much exposure you have gotten into math already. So like, let's say you have 
certain knowledge about calculus. I think that's one part. But if you had like zero knowledge about calculus, right, then you have to start off with that first, right, before you look into linear algebra and then after that, the elliptic curve. So it's everybody has a different starting point. So if I were to take the extreme of, let's say you have zero knowledge about, like, you only know like basic multiplication and divisions and rounding, rounding down of solidity, then I would say maybe three to four months mm-hmm. of like full-time looking, getting your pre on getting the fundamentals right first. And then after that, diving into ZK. I know you have a couple of cool stories that I want to dive into. I think we, we can start off with the index finance hack and your involvement in discovering the hacker. Yeah, sure thing. So the index finance one, let's see where it start. Okay. So it started all like it, the index finance already got hacked, right? And then I was just like reading into the post-mortem and the blog post. And that's when I realized that they, they released certain info. Like it was like, I think the last paragraph of the blog post where they mentioned a certain name of who they think the hacker is, right? And the name was very unique. It's, it goes by the handle of Umbrella Epsilon, right? I think that's quite, uh, to me, it was unforgettable because it's quite math inclined, right? Epsilon is like, you know, it's like a Delta, it's like Delta, but you, you use it relatively to approximate, it's like a, a notation in math for error to calculate the size of an error, right? So yeah, that that name kind of like stuck with me. And I realized that it was the name of a warden that I saw in Code Arena. And so I kind of take a, I took a look at the hackers transactions. And then I, then because thankfully the awards that were sent by the C4 multi-sig, everything's uh, on chain, right? So you could then trace like the, who, who's getting what amount, right? So you could see that looking at the warden's handle, how much he got, You if you took a look at the audit report and you see like he, the the way that they kind of like listed who the wardens were that participated in the audit, they were listed by the amount that they they were awarded in that audit. So I think it was like fourth place in a certain contest, right? So if you then after that link it back to the transactions, then you see like the fourth transaction from the highest amount, and then then that's when the then you take a look at that account, that wallet address, and I realized that it was quite suspicious because he sent certain funds, I think, to Tornado Cash. And then a few hours later, then that those funds were received by the exploiter. So then I think I I highlighted it to Sock regarding this, that I I think there was something like suspicious that I spotted. And then I told, I told him about it. I also reached out to, I think, Lawrence from Index Finance back then. Yeah. So then after that, they continued with further investigations and that's when they found out the real identity of the hacker. And certainly, like, of course, I, I, I kept up with the proceedings and trying to see what has happened. And sadly, I think if I recall, the exploiter got rubbed because he was using an address that was generated by the vanity address generator, which had a vulnerability. So, yeah, unfortunately, the, rug, the rugger got rubbed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, it's a sad end to the entire story. Yeah, I know. That's funny that it's it was such a memorable name for you that you just kind of knew there was something wrong with it in a way. Yeah, yeah. And thankfully, like I could make the connection in that sense. And you also had a bit of a brush with the FBI. If you want to elaborate on that a little bit. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that one... That story, oh, okay, let me see how much I can review about it. I was working on a site project, right? And one night, I received a call from an anonymous caller. I think it was like 11 p.m. So I like I, I thought it was like a spam call because, you know, the number's like very suspicious. It's an international number. So, but he was quite persistent. So I eventually like, picked up the second, I think the second or third time he called and, uh, then that's when I was like, he, he said something like, stop moving the funds, stop moving the funds. So I was like, okay, my first thought was funds, like 
what times? What are you talking about? I just went out for the dinner with uh, my my girlfriend. But still, he's like, are, are you this guy? Are you from like Cairo? I was like, yeah, yeah, that's me. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah, just stop moving the funds. I was like, okay. I, I thought it was a prank call. I, I didn't think too much into it. But I think what happened? A few months later down the road, another me- another member of this side project was approached by, I think this guy. He gave him a letter and asked him that he, that he probably had, I think he gave him like a, was it a, it's not like a cease and desist, but the kind of a lawyer, like lawyer letter where you, you've been served, you know, it seemed that there was some seriousness to earn. But then again, you know, that seemed like, it seemed like the end of it. So again, didn't pursue too much into it. But about almost a year ago, I received a, I've already left Kyber, right? So I received a call from an ex-colleague that's currently is, uh, still working there. And she told me that there's this guy that's outside the front door. He's asking for you. And he has your NRIC, uh, which, is, which is like our, our identity, identity card, right? He has a photo of it. So I was like, okay, right. So I, I, like I kind of like connected the dots and okay, I think this guy like is, I think he is looking for me. So I, I, I rushed down and, and I met up with him. So he's, he was the founder of a project that got hacked and the funds got exploited and somehow the exploited funds linked to the deployer address that I use for this like site project. So, you know, to him, it's like, you are the guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he's like, oh, I actually have the, I've been working with the FBI and, you know, they told me not to reach out to you, but here I am. <laughs> so it's like, okay. So, so I kind of like, look, so I told him like, okay, if you, if you really think I'm, I'm the guy, like, just like show me the, the transactions, right? Then I could do my best to help you to, to see whether, like how exactly it's it linked to, linked to this like deploy address. So turns out it was, he were, we used a mixer, right? And turns out the originating address was from the hack. I deposited, I was using a mixer, so I deposited money in and the money that was used for the address was for that exploiter. So it was just an unfortunate coincidence that linked link to this deployer. But that, that's the story. And I'm, I guess I cleared my name in that sense. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I told him, like, I know I understand, like, the rest of my team members, they aren't as technical. I, if, if I was the guy, I was the guy, but I'm not. <laughs> so I, I told him, yeah, I was, I was probably your most, like, likely suspect, and I, I can see why, but yeah, it's not me. And uh, I, yeah, I, help, I helped him after that with filtering the transactions on who I thought it could be. So I did, like, a filter, and I sent him uh, a list of possible addresses that he could look further into. So I sent yeah. it to him. Yeah, I think that's really lucky it was you in a sense because you're obviously... Oh, unlucky. Yeah. Or unlucky perhaps, but you're obviously technical. So you could clear your name because you know what's going on and you can help track down the transactions and you you basically know how to tell them that's not you. But if you imagine it would be someone that's not technical or just a random user of something that got his address, then they would be in, possibly in a lot of trouble. Yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine that they would they, they would be panicking and they'll be unsure of what to do. It's like, yeah, it would probably yes. have complicated things. So if you get falsely accused of a hack, call Hiccup and it's going to help you out. <laughs> I'll do my best. No guarantees. <laughs> yeah. And another cool story that you have was your part in helping 100 Proof with the Kyber swap funding. Yeah, yeah. Okay, to be honest, I didn't really like do much. I was on vacation with a few friends and then I was having like breakfast, right, with them. Uh, we were sitting by like a roadside stall and then I received a message from 100 Proof that's like, hey, I, I have this, like, I think I found a vulnerability but it, it's a live vulnerability, so I cannot review too much videos into it. But I, it's a project that you've been working, that you've worked with before. So I was like, oh, okay. It's like, yeah. So turns out it was with Kyberswap. So then I linked him up with the CTO and I let like discussions uh, take over from there. But how he knew that I was involved with Kyber was because we were chatting a few weeks earlier and he was asking me some Uni V3 stuff because he saw 
I think I wrote, a, I found a number of vulnerabilities with sushi swaps when they did a fork of Uni V3. So that's how he, he read into my findings and he asked me a few questions regarding the mechanisms. I think that goes to show that auditing or even bug hunting with other people can help you a long way in ways you don't really expect as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Knowing, having a, having friends, auditors or fellow security researchers, meeting them in real life, I think that goes a long way into, it's like, if you ever need help or you need to reach out to a certain project, like Curve, for instance, right? You can just ping the community, just ask around and I'm pretty sure people will help direct you to the, the person that you need to reach out to. So it's, it's, it's a community, right? Everybody, I think most people that I met at the DeFi Security Summit, they were like very nice people. But of course, on, online, you, you know, they, they could be like flaming each other. They, they're shooting like, they're, they're like, like mud slinging at each other, right? But then, you know, in real life, they're like, oh, they, they actually seem quite tame. <laughs> they are like probably a little bit shy. Yeah, it's, it's always, once you could, once you can put like a face behind the online persona, I think, and having that, that connection with them, I think it's like, oh yeah, you're that guy. So when like next time when you're going to collaborate with him, then you know, you could at least put that face. And I think it helps building rapport and it, it goes a long way. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of heated debates, what is your take on the traditional audits versus the contest uh, <laughs> audits? That they have? Okay, that was a very spicy panel. I'm not sure if I want to throw my comments around. <laughs> But I told, I told Rajiv that number one, the panel was too short. One and I think it was only like an hour and a half. He should have, they should have, like after there was a break, right? Just extend into the break and carry on, you know, that like, just like clear, clear skip, the it other, going. Skip, skip the other talks along the way, you know, just like yeah. get everybody packed in the room and let them <laughs> continue talking about it. I think, okay, but if, if you were to ask me, I think there's a place for each firm right? Uh, whether you're a traditional audit firm, whether or not you're doing community audit contests, there's definitely something, there's enough space for everyone. There is no right or wrong answer. It really depends on the client's budget, right? If you have, again, if I think someone pointed it out that if you had unlimited money, you just go to everyone because it's the idea of Swiss cheese layering, right? So you have like Swiss layers of Swiss cheese, some holes good some holes means like some vulnerabilities get through, but it's caught by someone else, right? So if you have the money, then, you know, you could engage everyone. But of course, we know that is unrealistic. It's not possible. So then I think a mix and match of probably some of these avenues would work. So maybe you go to a solo auditor first to help sanitize, uh, to do a first pass, and then you go on to a traditional audit. And then after that, you finish up with a community audit, uh, to catch anything else that was not spotted. That should have already been caught by the first two, right? And then after that, then maybe you have a bug bounty program to finish things off in case in production, uh, some something gets goes wrong and somebody can point it out to you. Yeah, I, I agree that the, the layer approach is definitely the most security sound one. Mm. And it's important to know the difference between the different kinds of services out there right now, but yep. ultimately, I don't think there's one better solution. I think you have to do them all if you can. Yeah. And sure. something else that I thought was interesting that you participated in the DeFi Summit, the CTF, with a beginner auditor in your team with Simichel and, and Pashov. And yeah. I want to know what your thoughts were taking on Misedo. Yeah. So how how was that experience in onboarding a beginner? And uh, I wouldn't say onboarding. Like we were just like setting things up already. So I already I I took part in a previous CTF in East Taipei. So it was also organized by Furu Combo and Tenderly, right? So with like that experience, I think like I knew that okay, I had to like set up an account with fun. So like I just started setting things up. So having like a foundry script prepared, right? Um, that's ready to de send transactions uh, to to the testnet. Um, so with that, doing that, like in, in a sense, like infra setup already helped a bit. Um, with regards to working with a beginner, I think 
it was hands down immediately just like just start start looking at, at things right and i think christoph was looking in, into one or two i think there were like four to five challenges he he looked at like one of the first two so we, we just had a, a brief overview and tried to understand how easy it was to spot the vulnerability right and the one that i worked on i think was challenge number four right that one had the most number of points that was awarded and I sort of already, I had a hunch of the vulnerability already on what exactly you, you, need, you needed to exploit. And I, I started hacking away on it. And then after that, I dragged Pashov because I think it was done looking at one of the challenges. So uh, me and Pashov, we were working together on, on this challenge and we were like trying a whole lot of different things. And being able to spot the vulnerability is one thing, right? But the other part, the other side of it, is writing out the script, writing out the POC, testing it. And unfortunately, that's where uh, we stumbled and we, we, were, we were just unable to complete it on time. And long story short, it was an EVM compiler setting where uh, I compiled in the latest version, which is, I think, Shanghai. And uh, the, the one that was deployed by the challenge was uh, using Paris. So it was an older version and there was like some incompatibility there that, kind of like mess things up. And I only realized like 10 minutes too late because by then the challenge closed. So I was like, like we tried all sorts of different things. We were like snitching things up. Me and Pasha, that, that was fun to, to be honest. I enjoyed working with him. He shared a couple of tools that I would definitely use. That helps to, to read like the, the storage values uh, in real time. So so that, that was quite useful. Yeah, but again, I think from, it, it's definitely a valuable experience. Because as security researchers, most of the time you probably just do like, you point out what's wrong, right? But then white hacking is different because you don't just point out what's wrong. You need to be able to kind of like write out a proof of concept, a working one and working under a time constraint to be able to say, pull like, you know, white hack funds away, right? In in a limit, in as fast as possible. I think that is not easy to pull off. And I think that's that's the one thing that I learned from doing that CTS challenge. I think in a way, it's also an interesting training if you ever have to do on-chain rescue, oh, like yeah. you recently had with Curve. That, Curve so yeah. yeah, and as time goes by, I think there'll be people that specialize in those sort of scenarios where something is happening and you have to be quick and be fast and know how to get things yep, like perfect, absolutely. one try. Yeah, so if, and yeah, if you like mess, like you, all, all this is like one field transaction and, you know, like you have like MEV searchers who can come in and kind of like patch things up and, you know, they, they'll be able to do it before you can. So it's, it, I think there's this blog post by Sam CZ, Ethereum is a dark forest. I highly encourage reading that blog post. It, it's, yeah, you realize that it's like you're in an, you're in a very adverse environment, right? So you, with the time that you have, sometimes it feels like you are against the world, like there's nothing that can help you. I think that's when experience comes into play. So reaching out to experienced white hats would, and helping, getting them to help you would, would go a long way, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, it was a pleasure meeting with you. Yeah, it was a pleasure having this interview as well, to be able to share my stories.